welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. First, I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS, but what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. In our previous episode, we talked with Rhonda, who shared her experience living with MS for decades and her favorite recent pathways to healing that have enabled her to live her best life with MS. I hope you found her story as compelling as I did and were able to glean some important insights about how to navigate your own journey towards living well with MS. Rhonda will be at our next flock meeting for you to chat with, so I hope you'll consider joining us. This week, I'd like to share an overview of some of the most important and relevant for us learnings from the recent Institute of Functional Medicine annual international conference, which I attended virtually with Dr. Susan earlier this month. For my gratitude this episode, I'm grateful for Dr. Susan and her generous invitation to attend the IFM conference. I am a firm believer that information is power, and as a layperson without a medical degree or background, I really appreciate the access to cutting-edge health information that people like us are otherwise not often privy to. Dr. Susan opened a door for me I would likely otherwise not have been able to open. I acknowledge that I had incredible privilege to attend, to learn directly from the experts, and to have a window into the conference session chat channel to see what a wide range of current health professionals are thinking about what they're learning in real time. With privilege comes responsibility, and so today I'd like to continue with the transparency and flow of important new health information by sharing what I learned with you, the larger MS community. I won't share everything. I did take 39 pages of notes, but I will share the highlights of relevant sessions so that if you're interested in learning more, you'll know which avenue to take. Without further ado, let's let the learning transfer begin. The first session I'd like to share was called the gut immune connection and what role your microbes play in it. This was a session by Dr. Emerin Meyer, a cutting edge neuroscientist specializing in the gut immune connection. If you're like me, you've heard a lot about the gut immune connection and how it relates to MS, especially recently. And luckily, this is an area where there's currently a lot of research taking place. In fact, Dr. Meyer shared that a lot of discovery is yet to come, as most efforts to date have focused on the understanding of human genes, of which we have about 20,000, whereas we have between 2 and 20 million microbial genes left to explore. 
He believes that's 99% of the puzzle left to solve when considering the gut immune connection. Did you know that in healthy people, there is little to no variability in the gut microbiome? However, the gut is a highly variable ecosystem, and those variations in the gut represent disease. Lots of things impact and change our microbiome environment. Antibiotics, our daily diet, GI secretion and absorption, our genetic background, our immune system, stress, pathogens, just to name a few of potential modulators. When our gut ecosystem changes, our body receives microbial signals, which can manifest in neurologic, endocrine, or systemic ways throughout our bodies. 70% of our immune cells live in the gut, with the rest systematic through the body. So when our gut microbiome is modulated, we experience neurodegeneration. This is why what we eat each and every day is so important. Our food truly is our body's medicine and is reliably our first step towards better health. I also learned that the first two years of our lives are instrumental in early colonization of a healthy gut microbiome. In fact, even prenatal health can impact our gut, as can our form of birth, be it natural versus cesarean or C-section. And even the mental health of the mother during gestation can heavily influence our early development of a healthy gut microbiome. Disturbances to the microbiome in early life show an increased risk of autism, anxiety, depression, and a lot of other ailments in adulthood. After age two, additional disturbances to the gut microbiome create what's called an allostatic load, which can lead to metabolic disorders like obesity and neurodegenerative disorders in adulthood. Dr. Meyer also shared about adverse early life experiences, or ACEs, like we discussed long ago in episode 11, The Past Informs the Future, ACEs and Resiliency and how ongoing psychological stress as children drastically increases the likelihood of anxiety disorders as adults. In my notes at this point, I wrote in all caps, Ick! Are we doomed? But the good news is that we're not. The most effective interventions, according to Dr. Meyer, are change in diet, increased exercise, and ongoing social connectedness. Luckily, we have access to Dr. Susan, who, through the True Medicine MS program, offers reliable health information for optimal diet and exercise for people with MS, and offers a place for people with MS to gather and share their experiences. The misunderstood flock meetings also offer ongoing social connection for those of us with the shared goal of living well with MS. If you don't currently access those avenues of support, just make sure you have your own in your own life. So, how do we know what's going on in our gut? Dr. Meyer says our bowel habits, both regularity and quality of the stool, are the strongest indicators. Let's start with stool quality. You can access the Bristol stool chart to help you determine your, ideally daily, stool quality. I'll post this chart on our Patreon page for your convenience. 
For now, I'll provide a brief verbal explanation. The Bristol stool chart displays illustrations and descriptions of a range of stools, numbered from 1 to 7, with numbers 3 and 4 on the chart representing the ideal healthiest stools to strive for on a daily basis. At one end of the spectrum, a number one stool shows the stool as separate hard lumps, like nuts, which indicates an unhealthy stool and a state of severe constipation. A number two stool is lumpy and sausage-like, indicating mild constipation. A number three stool is a sausage-shaped stool with cracks in the surface and is considered normal. A number four stool is like a smooth, soft sausage or snake with gentle curvature and is considered ideal. A number five stool is depicted as soft blobs with clear-cut edges. This is indicative of a diet lacking in fiber. A number six stool is a mushy consistency with ragged edges and is considered a state of mild diarrhea. And number seven is considered a state of severe diarrhea, with the stool having a liquid consistency with no solid pieces. Think about your most recent stool. Where did you score on the scale? What might that information be encouraging you to either change or continue when it comes to your dietary and other lifestyle choices that impact gut motility? Speaking of gut motility, gut motility is a delicate process that can also be negatively impacted by stress. So if we're struggling with managing our stress well, we're likely to experience slower GI motility, increased blood-brain barrier permeability, also known as leaky gut, raised blood pressure, immune system modulation, heightened anxiety, fear, sadness, and depression, as well as development of excess biofilms, which we learned in episode 55, the MS Lyme conundrum, makes our bodies even more susceptible to viral and bacterial infection. In fact, leaky gut and chronic dietary and psychological stress increases the risk of depression, colon cancer, cognitive decline, Parkinson's, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, metabolic syndromes, and a variety of autoimmune responses. I also found it interesting when Dr. Meyer shared about a study on mood that showed that an altered microbiome in mice created a significant depressive state in mice, where extroverted mice became markedly more timid and introverted as their microbiome was altered. He cited similar studies on obesity. When studying Parkinson's disease, they found that chronic constipation was a common precursor up to 14 years prior to the diagnosis of Parkinson's. The current belief is that neurodegeneration begins in the gut and then through gut permeability slowly travels through the vagus nerve system and other avenues over time up to the brain. Dr. Meyer believes that in the next five to ten years, much of what's historically and currently learned in medical school will change as a result of recent learnings about the gut microbiome health. He also humbly shared that just ten years ago, even he was laughing at the term leaky gut. 
So it's really important for us to remember that science is not static. It changes over time as we learn more. Thank goodness for that. As people living with MS, we have a lot more ways to reliably slow progression now than we did even 20 years ago. You might ask, are there stool tests or other ways I can discover more details about the health of my own microbiome? The simple answer is yes. But in all honesty, for those of us with MS, it's pretty clear that cleaning up our gut is imperative, especially if we're not consistently scoring threes and fours with our daily stools. Some doctors will conduct stool testing. In the chat poll at the conference, for instance, 46% of functional medicine doctors said they regularly test patient stools, 29% infrequently, and 26% not at all at this time. That said, Dr. Meyer's current stance as a leading expert in this area is that the existing tests aren't terribly reliable, but he's hopeful that with an increase of discovery efforts in this arena that we will have more reliable tests soon. What's wrong with current tests? Well, current tests are expensive, which can be prohibitive for many of us, and the existing tests often reveal false positives, don't do a good job of detecting live bacteria, and are unable to detect smaller molecules of significant importance. So, this session really drove home the importance of seriously minding my microbiome. This means I'm eating clean, supporting my microbiome with regular doses of probiotics, prebiotics, and lots of phytonutrients to minimize and repair any gut permeability I may have. This also means I'm diligently managing my stress and taking action every day to exercise to help my body safely release stress and toxins. It means I'm engaging in regular mindfulness meditation, and it means I'm monitoring my gut motility and ensuring I'm removing toxins from my body through a daily healthy stool and regular urination. I'd love to hear what this information is making you think about what you can do to better help support your healthy gut microbiome. The next session I'd like to share today was called Why Sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD. Matthew is the author of Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. Dr. Susan is currently reading this book, and we will do an entire episode soon on Sleep Together containing these new learnings, beyond what was already shared in episode 17, Maximizing Restorative Sleep for Healing. In this session, I learned the latest research supporting just how critical sleep is for our brains. Did you know that sleep before we learn prepares our brains to absorb new knowledge? Matthew compares a well-rested brain to a dry sponge, able to absorb new knowledge, whereas a sleep-deprived brain is waterlogged and has little to no ability to absorb new knowledge. This is really important for those of us that experience cognitive decline, which is quite common with MS. In a similar way, quality sleep after learning helps us to solidify our learning and transfer any newly acquired knowledge into the longer-term storage areas in our brains. In the session, he shared many fascinating studies that were quite compelling. One was the all-nighter study, which involved a control group who got eight hours of sleep versus a sleep deprivation group. 
Learning deficits of 40% were shown with the deprivation group. That's the difference between the ability to score 100% on an exam versus 60%, an A plus or failing. No wonder quality sleep is so important for healthy brain activity and memory retention. This is some of the new data currently driving school districts to offer a later starting time for students. Matthew Walker shared that our hippocampus is like the inbox of the brain. It receives memory files and retains them. So if we're sleep deprived and the hippocampus can't do its job well, it won't detect signals like it's supposed to, and in essence shuts down the functionality of our memory inbox, which prevents our brain's potential to keep learning. At this point in my notes, as someone who has to work really hard to get eight hours of deep sleep each night, I wrote F, then a couple letters, and a K with an exclamation point in large letters across the page. I knew sleep was really important, but not quite to this extent. Matthew reminded us about the movie Memento, which is a good representation of what life would be like without a hippocampus. The character in the movie is, as Matthew described, densely amnesiac. Check it out if you haven't seen it. I plan to watch it again soon through this new lens of understanding. So why does poor sleep disrupt our cognitive ability so much? The most beneficial brain waves only occur in our deepest sleep. And it's this deep sleep, as previously mentioned, that shifts information from short-term to long-term storage. Deep sleep transacts those benefits. Matthew also shared how we lose the ability to access our memories as we age, and in fact, the greater the disruption of our sleep, the greater our chances are of experiencing cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. He also shared that just one week of poor sleep causes our brain to lose functionality equivalent to aging 10 years beyond our actual age. It also causes dangerous fluctuations in testosterone in men and estrogen in women, which can trigger other serious health ramifications. And just one week of poor sleep can disrupt our blood sugar enough for us to be diagnosed as pre-diabetic. The switch to daylight savings, where everyone in our society loses one hour of sleep, results in an increase of heart attacks the following day of 24%. In the fall, when we gain an hour of sleep, there's a 21% decrease in heart attacks the following day. Similar patterns exist for suicide rates and vehicular accidents. Wow. Here's another relevant reason that we, as people living with MS, need to sleep well. Our natural killer cells, T-cells, are like the 007s of our cells, or immune assassins, according to Matthew. In a recent study, just a four-hour sleep restriction for one night resulted in a 70% drop in natural killer cell activity. In terms of reduced immune system operations, that's a significant deficiency. And that's just after one night. Imagine for those of us who don't sleep well night after night. Even short-term sleep deprivation has been shown to increase cancer risks. In fact, the World Health Organization recently labeled, quote, working the night shift as a possible carcinogen. 
In another study Matthew shared, even when people sleep six hours per night for one week, which is pretty common in our society and more than many people get, 711 genes showed distorted activity. Half of the genes became overactive, while the other half became underactive. Here's what's really scary, though. The genes that became overactive were those responsible for inflammation, cardiovascular disease, and promoting tumors. The genes that became underactive were our critical immune system modulation genes. Through the presentation of a variety of fascinating studies, Matthew convinced us that no aspect of health can escape the need for sleep, and that a lack of quality restorative sleep is akin to a broken water pipe in our house. It impacts every aspect of our health. He later referred to a healthy sleep regimen as the Swiss army knife of health, since quality sleep, or a lack thereof, impacts us and our health in so many ways. So, pretty daunting. What to do? There's a lot of helpful information about how to build a sleep routine and ways to develop healthy sleep hygiene in episode 17. Take a revisit. Matthew shared that in his opinion, the two most important things are, one, maintaining regularity of our sleep schedules, and two, sleeping in a bedroom 65 to 67 degrees Fahrenheit for brain and body sleep optimization. I want to share a few more helpful tips that Matthew shared in this workshop. First, let's talk about caffeine. Coffee. And I'm talking organic black coffee, not coffee loaded with sugars and artificial flavors or toxins, has been shown to have some health benefits, the most important being a solid source of antioxidants. And for people who don't already eat a clean diet full of antioxidants, sometimes coffee might be their only source. But Matthew does share that it's important to limit ourselves to two cups per day and to stop our daily intake of caffeine at least 10 to 12 hours before bed to give our body adequate time to flush out the caffeine, since the half-life of caffeine is a good five to six hours. That means if you have a cup of coffee at 11 a.m., at 7 p.m., your body is still holding on to half of the caffeine. This is really important. Even if we are one of those people who think we can drink coffee or other caffeinated beverages in the afternoon and still sleep well. If caffeine is still in our system, even if we believe we are sleeping well, it will deplete our ability to obtain the deepest restorative sleep that we really need by 12 to 15% each night. Matthew also talked about using THC and CBD for sleep. He shared research that while THC can help us fall asleep faster, it's important to be aware that some emergent studies show it can block some of our REM sleep. He's a stronger proponent of using CBD since it's an anxiolytic in that it is an adept emotional regulator and quiets the fight-flight response through vagal nerve input. CBD is hypothermic and that it can also help lower our core body temperature and help us sleep more deeply. Interestingly, studies have shown that a low dose of CBD of less than 20 milligrams can actually disrupt sleep 
And so to reap the benefits, we need at least 25 milligrams of CBD for it to be sleep promoting. I have definitely found this to be true in my own personal experience with CBD over time. Since I was previously relying on a blend of THC and CBD for sleep, with this new knowledge over the past three and a half weeks, I have slowly shifted to taking my THC earlier, right after dinner, so that I can still reap the benefits of the pain and spasticity relief I need from the THC, yet not have to worry about the THC impacting my ability to sleep deeply. I'm also ensuring I'm taking the proper dosage of CBD before bed to optimize my sleep. This change seems to be working well for me, so I'm grateful for this session's learnings. Matthew shared some interesting facts about melatonin that are also worth sharing, since I know many people with MS who rely on melatonin, and many who take it nightly. Melatonin is affectionately referred to as the, quote, vampire hormone, in that it helps regulate the timing of our sleep. But, and this is something you might not know, it doesn't help with the actual generation of deep restorative sleep. So, melatonin can help us begin the race by on average helping us fall to sleep 3.2 minutes faster, but it doesn't help much with performance during the race only an increase of quality of sleep of 2.2%. The one time Matthew is a strong proponent of using melatonin is when traveling between time zones, but otherwise he doesn't find it terribly helpful, although he acknowledges there is the placebo effect that is a very real lived experience, and that in itself can be considered a benefit in some cases. Matthew did, however, share caution against using melatonin regularly and the importance of finding a reputable source of melatonin. Get this. In a recent study of the top 20 brands, the actuality of what was in the bottle versus what was stated on the label ranged from 80% less melatonin to 460% more. With the optimal dosage being 0.8 to 1 milligram, many people are taking way too much. This may be helpful for some folks in the short term, but in the long term, Matthew explained that it actually causes our bodies to shut down our natural production of melatonin, which causes a negative feedback loop and further degradation of the quality of our sleep over time. It's scary to think about how many children are using melatonin gummies these days and how this may impact their ability to obtain healthy amounts of restorative sleep now and throughout their lives. So if you are using melatonin regularly, you'll want to ensure you're using a reputable brand whose label matches the actual contents and that your dosing is such that it isn't causing you more sleep disturbance. So if melatonin isn't really as good of a solution as we've primarily thought it was, what is? Matthew recommends CBTI as a first recommendation for anyone experiencing severe difficulty sleeping. This is cognitive behavioral therapy specializing in insomnia and has been proven to have the most positive outcomes. He also suggests more exercise and movement as that helps our body become more naturally ready to sleep. Matthew does not recommend pharmaceutical sleep aids as these cause a lack of naturalistic sleep and prevent deep sleep wave activity to occur. 
Magnesium, particularly magnesium threonate, can help. But having our magnesium levels tested before using is important. Botanicals like valerian root show no real benefit in scientific studies, but some users report a placebo effect. Matthew did share a recent study that showed some promise of tart cherry juice, which has immunosuppressive benefits and is rich in antioxidants as a possible sleep aid, but more research is needed to confirm those early results. Lastly, Matthew recommends that one, all clock faces are removed from the bedroom so that if we wake up in the middle of the night, we won't be tempted to check the time, which greatly hinders our ability to fall back into a deep sleep. Also, a completely dark room promotes sleep. If you're like me, you like having a nightlight so you can get to the restroom safely during the night if needed. So I use a sleep mask so that I can sleep in complete darkness. My absolute favorite for fit and functionality is the Sleep Monkey Luxury Sleep Mask. They are machine washable and don't make me overheat while sleeping, which makes them well worth the cost. Using these masks allow me to sleep in darkness, but also have the light I need to navigate the bedroom at night safely. Matthew also recommends that too, if we have a few consecutive nights of insufficient sleep, to resist changing our sleep schedule, upping our caffeine, or taking naps to try to catch up on our sleep. This only messes with our circadian issues more and further exacerbates the issue. Napping releases adenosine, which is a chemical that builds in our bodies naturally during the day to prepare us for sleep at night. If we're struggling with sleep at night and take a nap during the day, it's like a pressure valve and releases this chemical prematurely, which can negatively impact our future ability to sleep deeply at night. This is like snacking before a meal. We simply won't be as hungry when it's mealtime. Matthew does say, if we aren't struggling with getting a full eight hours of deep restorative sleep every night and like to take a short nap during the day, to go for it. Just make sure it's not after 3 p.m. and that our nap is limited to 20 minutes. This seminar made me think a lot about my own sleep habits. Thankfully, Dr. Susan has helped me to develop a healthy sleep schedule that our entire family adheres to now, so it made me very grateful for the positive changes we've already made. To think that just a few years ago, we were consistently staying up until 12 or 1 a.m. and functioning on just four to six hours of sleep each night, and often less. I never thought a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleep schedule would work for us, but it truly does, and it is possible. And I believe now that this shift is responsible for many of the improvements in health I've experienced in the past few years. So I'm curious, what is this new information regarding sleep making you want to change with your own sleep patterns? Other sessions I attended were the following. One, a session on safe supplementation. This is actually going to be its own episode coming soon, as really helpful tools were shared about how to ensure product safety, which is a huge concern in our currently non-regulated supplement industry. As Matthew shared, what's actually in the bottle is rarely what's listed on the label. Stay tuned for this episode coming soon. Two, 
I also attended a fascinating session on mast cell activation. This was the one session that was a wee bit over my head as a layperson, since it was heavy in medical lingo. Many chemical formulas were used, and the presenter talked and changed slides very quickly. I plan to rewatch this session, review the session notes and slides, and then may share more in the future. Because mast cells are the immune gate to the brain. They communicate with immune cells and pathogens in the body and are activated by heat and stress and responsible for much of our heat sensitivity, food sensitivity, and strong reactions to odors, which many of us with MS experience. Three. Another session was all about brain science and utilizing psychedelics for transformative mental health care. This is another session topic I plan to research more deeply before potentially sharing more. But I will say now that the presenter, Dr. Scott Shannon, shared that depression is overactivity of the brain and that there are very promising studies showing that various psychedelics can help to turn off the worry and enable us to live more in the present moment. There's exciting evidence that this can help folks with PTSD release trauma. In fact, one month post-treatment, 89% of patients were able to create behavioral change with positive lasting effects for well over a year past their treatment. He shared some fascinating current studies on psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, MDMA, and other psychedelics like LSD, mescaline, and ketamine. He noted that the substances used in therapeutic sessions are not those one might purchase on the street, which are often laced with very dangerous compounds, and cautioned us from experimenting on our own without strong guidance from a professional. I'll be sure to share more on this topic once I've learned more. Four, other sessions of interest were on behavior change, latest updates in breast cancer care, regenerating human health from the soil up, and what it means to be a change agent in the healthcare industry. While all of the 12 sessions I attended were extremely interesting, the ones I just shared were, in my opinion, the most important to share today with our shared MS community. I hope that by listening to this episode, we all, one, remember that knowledge is power and that by researching our own deepest health-related questions, we can forge a path to a place of healing and overall better health. Two, that if this episode illuminated a possible path to better health for you, that you'll take the opportunity to further your learning and consider reaching out to chat with me in greater depth about any of the topics that I shared today. We'll also have space to do this at our next flock meeting. And three, that we may all continue to find, celebrate, and elevate the practice of healthcare professionals who transparently provide us with access to reliable health information that helps enable us to live well with MS. Our next Misunderstood Flock meeting will be Saturday, July 2nd. That's this Saturday. At the Flock meeting, we'll discuss this episode and other episodes released since our last Flock meeting. And we'll spend some time together celebrating recent wins and supporting one another with current hardships. If you're not yet a Flock member but would like to be, join us. 
We are all people living with MS that meet via Zoom monthly to support each other and continue our learning on the episode topics. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com slash msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with MS-related questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another, and honking our encouragement. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, be well.